Welcome back to the 18th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be discussing some stories about America's foreign policy, including Biden's move to crush emerging industries in China, a interesting article talking about how the U.S. is trying to shore up its relations here within the continent, and a article that comes from the Daily Wire talking with General Pistorius saying Russia can't win this war and Putin's starting to look desperate. And of course, we will end with the Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into the stories. The first one comes from the New York Times. U.S. said to plan new limits on China's AI and supercomputing firms. And what we can see here, what the article gets into, is a Biden plan that kind of resembles some of the steps that Trump took during his administration. There was the move, if you remember, that Trump made against Huawei. And the main reason that he took that position that we should not do business with Huawei and that we won't allow companies that work with the U.S. outside the U.S., you know, maybe in Britain, Germany, that they couldn't also work with Huawei is because it was a national security issue. Uh, Huawei producing 5G technology was given great access to different uh, communication grids in different countries, which would give, by proxy, the Ch- Chinese Communist Party, who basically controls all of the companies. And by controls, I mean has a strong influence over the quote-unquote private companies that it has inside its country. And that could be seen as a security threat. So these restrictions that are being talked about in Washington are meant to do similar things. They're supposed to keep a lot of these major companies that are based in China from acquiring U.S. technology. And we'll start with a quote. New measures to restrict China's companies from getting access to to technologies that enable high-performance computing, according to several people familiar with the matter, the latest in the series of moves aimed at hobbling Beijing's ambitions to craft next-generation weapons and automate large-scale surveillance systems. And yes, again, you could see that the approach that Biden's taking here is a strategic one, or at least a defensive one. The reasoning he's giving is, well, we don't necessarily want them to have the technology to develop more advanced weapons that could threaten us in the United States. And the benefit of this policy that they're not mentioning, or at least that Biden's not saying outright, is that it's going to spur U.S. companies to fill that gap in the market. If Chinese companies don't have access to all these resources and technologies, you know, whether it be chips, GPUs, that they need to produce certain products, then it's going to become more expensive to do so, meaning that the prices will rise. And with the current trade war and different tariffs that the U.S. and China both have put in place, it's going to seem more prudent 
from a business perspective to start buying the same products that China's producing, but rather here in America. And with the passage of the CHIPS Act over this last year, we're seeing a lot of infrastructure being built around uh, semiconductors, different chips that need to be produced here in the U.S. So you can kind of see that in the larger picture, this is a very coordinated move by the Biden administration and the Democrats and even the Republicans who want to bring infrastructure and manufacturing back to the United States. This is very either well thought out ahead of time or Biden is now capitalizing on this opportunity and saying, "Okay, well, the Americans really like the chip back. They like the fact that we're kind of going hard on China and it provides them with a great opportunity to say, "Okay, we are going to put up this policy that people like. And we can really spin it for China that, oh, no, no, this is for our national interest. This is for our security. Because China China absolutely despises the U.S. And when I say China, I do not mean the people of China. I mean the government of China. It's much like the USSR. And I know a lot of people have made this comparison. And I'm not trying to say it's a Cold War Part Two, But the viewpoint, the worldview of these two major economic powers, the U.S. and China, are directly opposed. One is a free market republic and democracy, the U.S., and a semi-free market international trade authoritarian regime with communist-style influences. And those viewpoints, though they both share the free market, China's market is not really free. And even the U.S.'s has become overly regulated over the last few years. But it is still not as heavily influenced and controlled and planned as the Chinese one is. And these two worldviews are directly opposed to one another. And it's going to cause a lot of conflict. It already has caused conflict. And when I first read this article, I was very happy to see that Biden is picking up on the policy positions that Trump had used to give America a more strategic advantage when it comes to our place in the world economy. Because China is a rising power, and they have been for a while, and they've been challenging the hegemonic rule of the United States on the world stage. And when you see your leaders taking a pro-America stance, and they are trying to target what I believe is one of the Uh, foremost international geopolitical threats, then it's very reassuring. And I think a lot of Americans feel that way. A lot of Americans were happy when they heard about the CHIPS Act because it brought manufacturing, or at least it's trying to bring manufacturing, to the United States. And it's not just manufacturing in the sense that, oh, these are blue-collar jobs that, you know, pay pay well, but not necessarily the best. No, these are in high-tech industries. These are in high-demand industries. They also are very strategically important industries. So it kind of satisfies a lot of different sectors. It satisfies the blue-collar workers, the people that are isolationists and want us to have a strong defense in place, the ones that want us to be a world leader. We can still export these chips and have uh, economic influence in the future. So it's really a forward-looking 
perspective that the Democrats, Republicans, and Biden have taken on this issue. They're finally acknowledging the realistic situation, which is China is a rising power. They're not going to stop anytime soon. And we need to be a little bit more defensive and at some points even go on the offensive, which is exactly what this proposal that the Biden administration is talking about will do. And I thought it was ironic that for once, Trump and Biden are 100% on the same page. They may go about it in a little bit different way, but they're on the same page. China's a threat, and we can't just uh, ignore them and say that, oh, by trading with them, we'll bring them into the the democratic world. We'll bring them into our viewpoint. That's not happening. They've acknowledged the reality, and now they're reacting in a way that, you know, actually fits the situation, in my opinion. And this is not an ordinary tariff or an ordinary restriction. So this proposal or this idea that the Biden administration is floating out there, it basically says that any company, any company that uses U.S. tech inside the U.S. or outside the U.S., that has certain microchips or GPUs or proprietary technology cannot be sold to specific firms inside China. So it's not saying, oh no, we're not going to send this to China as a whole. It's saying we will not let companies work with these Chinese companies if they're using our technology. And it's meant to specifically cripple certain industries. And like I mentioned earlier, the main focus is AI and supercomputing. And this is an area where China has grown rapidly thanks to the help of U.S. companies sending their tech overseas and then having that proprietary technology copied in China. So this is meant to, one, stop that, make sure that the Chinese companies can't copy our technology. They don't have as... They make it, we're making it harder to access this technology. Therefore, it's harder to copy. And also, we're trying to limit the abilities of these companies to build supercomputers that can as the article points out, greatly surveil and help the authoritarian regime in China control the populace. A lot of companies, Intel and NVIDIA, are mentioned here in the article, and I'm not trying to slander them. They are greatly against what happened. But their chips were used in surveillance systems in Xizhong, a province of China where the Uyghur Muslim population is being put into internment camps and being quote-unquote, re-educated, and basically they're being genocided. I know it's a bold statement, and I know it's terrible to hear. We, we don't want to see it. And NVIDIA and Intel were not aware that their chips were being used in these um, camps, these re-education camps, to surveil the uh, Uyghur population. So we're trying to cut back on our influence, our ability sorry, the Chinese Communist Party's ability to use our technology to do horrendous things. And I think that it's a a smart move. I think that we have to be careful because China sees itself, or at least it portrays itself to its population as someone that is discriminated against. Uh, The world is out to get China, basically. And certain moves like this can really solidify and the point they can the communist party can show their people and say look exactly what the u.s is doing see we told you they don't want us to succeed they don't want us to thrive 
So it can be used as internal propaganda against the United States. And I think that we have to be very careful moving forward. I feel like for a while, China is going to be very antagonistic. They're not going to like this move once it's officially put out there. And I would encourage you to keep your eye on the headlines for the next month or so and see if a post from the Global Times comes into your time feed because they always have something to say about U.S. policy towards China, and they'll probably be spewing some propaganda for the Chinese Communist Party. What I also found very interesting is the position of one person that was commenting on this article, that this is not necessarily a defensive or offensive measure economically, but rather it's actually a response to China really being antagonistic towards Taiwan, which I think is a a really great point. Taiwan has been experiencing more flyovers. Uh, If you saw the story about the drones that flew over uh, Taiwanese islands close to China, and by flyovers I also mean that they are regularly being threatened. They have uh, airplanes coming into their airspace, or sorry, not their airspace, into their strategic defense area, and Taiwan, each time that these planes are sent over by China, has to respond and get their planes ready and assess whether it's an actual threat or not. And this is all part of the Chinese Communist Party plan to slowly degrade Taiwan. So they're being very antagonistic, and this could be perceived as Biden saying, okay, you're going to be antagonistic towards Taiwan. You're going to keep playing these games. We can we can play some games too. So it serves a lot. This proposal, this uh, announcement, when it does come out, will serve lots of purposes. And I think, like I said, it's a very smart move by the Biden administration to not cowtail to the Chinese Communist Party. There's one more quote that I want to talk about here. Uh, from the article, quote, Washington also plans to limit U.S.-made microchips from being sold to China's most powerful computing and data center projects, the people said. The limitation could end up inhibiting the ability of major academic institutions and internet firms like Alibaba and Tencent from getting the parts they need to build leading data centers and supercomputers. Over time, as supercomputer performance levels rise, the cap could seriously hinder China's ability to develop the powerful number-crunching technology that forms the building blocks of innovations across an array of fields, including biosciences, artificial intelligence, and missile engineering. So, end quote. I think that we're, we're taking a, a forward stance here, and it can be perceived as a little bit aggressive, and we have to remember that If we push China into a corner, they're more likely to retaliate. So we have to be careful stepping into this kind of economic war area. And, you know, war is a little bit inflammatory, but this economic escalation, especially with the pressure that we're putting on South American countries who have been more friendly with China. And that really leads into our next article from Newsmax, Blinken. Biden moving to woo Latin Americans' next generation of far-left leaders. So this is the first time in almost a year since Blinken has made his way down to the uh, South America region, especially Chile, 
Quote, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken heads to Latin America on Monday to assert Washington's commitment to the region and meet with three leftist leaders amid concerns that neglect of the hemisphere has let China make economic inroads, end quote. So China has really been turning up the heat in the uh, South America region, and not even just there, in Asia as well. They're really trying to expand their area of economic influence. Uh, if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative over the last 10, five years specifically, but they've been doing this project for almost 10 years, um, they have really been pouring money into countries that are not traditionally allies of the United States or um, maybe India, when we're talking Pakistan. A lot of these states are not necessarily aligned with certain countries, but they have economic ties to those countries. And China is trying to come in and slowly whittle away at these economic ties and make them less reliant on the West and that economic system and more reliant on China. If you look at Africa, they have invested millions upon millions of dollars, or UN in the case of China, into different African countries as well as maybe Sri Lanka. If you remember where they took over a base that they had built there and they for a little bit had intended on building a military base there at one of the ports. Um, so China has really been pushing hard to expand its influence and it started to see cracks in the American region and it started investing there in order to kind of whittle away at the U.S.'s hold on some of these countries. For generations at this point, these countries have really been dependent on the United States. Uh, recently in my global politics class, we were reviewing the idea of the global south, states that are not necessarily as prosperous as a lot of the quote-unquote developed world, and how there's one theory that is really pushed by constructivist theorists that these countries in the global south are dependent on the money and industrial capabilities that they can provide for these large countries like the U.S. and maybe even the European Union. And China's trying to chip away at this quote-unquote dependency. Whether you 100% agree with dependency theory or not, you can't disagree that a lot of the exports that developing countries export are sent to developed countries. And this has been the case for a lot of industries in Southern America and Latin America, such as fruit industries or the precious metals industries. They have all been sent out to larger countries that refine these metals, that eat these foods. So for a while, these countries have really been dependent on the U.S. And China's starting to step in and say, okay, We'll, you know, we'll come in, we'll uh, get some of the products that you're mining, we'll, you know, offset the exports that you don't send to the U.S. and these other Western countries. But China's a little bit more, hmm, how, how should I put it, strategic with their influence and their work in other countries. So if you remember, a lot of the infrastructure that they built in different countries, the Belt and Road Initiative, instead of allowing local 
companies and local workers in Pakistan to come build the port that they were working on. They said that, no, no, it has to be Chinese companies. It has to be Chinese workers that do a majority of the work. So at the end of the day, they are providing infrastructure for Pakistan, but most of the profits are going straight back into the Chinese economy. And they're doing the same thing in Latin America. They're saying, oh, you have all this precious metals, all these really great resources. Well, we'll come in and we'll help you mine them so that we can uh, provide some economic stability. We can provide some money for your economy to flow more efficiently so that you can really work on developing yourself as a nation. And it sounds absolutely amazing. It, it seems like the, the best deal. But at the end of the day, they're actually exploiting these countries just as people in countries in the West have for generations by bringing in their own workers and their own companies and actually, instead of you know sending that money directly into the country, a lot of it is actually kicked back to these Chinese companies, which for the most part, are you know state-controlled or at least heavily state-influenced. And the U.S. has really noticed that China is coming to these countries and trying to offer them sweetheart deals. And it started to realize that, okay, we need to pay more attention to our backyard here. We really need to focus on these uh, countries that neighbor us or at least are in the similar area because we can't have an outpost for Chinese thought and Chinese uh, influence in the either North American or South American continent. Quote, the U.S. officials acknowledge privately the need to show the U.S.'s southern neighbors they remain a policy priority, despite the focus on big geopolitical issues such as Russia's war in Ukraine and China's threat to Taiwan. End quote. So, the U.S. is saying, okay, we know China is offering you prosperity, and we know that they are saying all these great things, and they're trying to lure you in with these sweetheart deals, but we're going to focus on you, too. We're going to invest in your country. We're going to provide economic stability as long as you can ensure that your country will be a free market, not necessarily democracy, but will be a free market safe haven where goods can come in and out. It won't be too heavily restricted. You'll allow people in your country to have the ability to move upward, have upward mobility. And the U.S. is really trying to push this idea that, no, no, the free market system is the way to go. It's basically, again, like I mentioned earlier, the pull between the USSR and the U.S. during the Cold War. The U.S. is not just trying to hem in the USSR and stop communism, but it's trying to actively spread its worldview and ensure that countries adopt this worldview, even by, you know, having different coups in different countries like we saw in Latin America and South America. That's how far the U.S. was willing to go to ensure that its worldview prevailed. And the U.S. has really pulled back recently because of a lot of backlash because of its international um, you know, the CIA's international presence and the different coups that happened in the really heavy-handed nature of U.S. foreign policy in the past. It's kind of, we've kind of pulled back as a nation and we've tried to be a little bit more gentle. So as a result, you can see that we've lost influence in some of these areas and China is trying to take advantage. But we have to remember that China isn't the only 
international actor that the U.S. should be worried about. And the, the article also highlights this towards the end. Quote, in Lima, Blinken will attend a meeting of the Organization of American States General Assembly, where Washington will push to pass a new resolution against Russia's invasion of Ukraine after the group issued one in March condemning Moscow. But there are doubts over how many countries will support the move after Petro said arming Ukraine would escalate the conflict. Quote, we hope for strong support from all member states on this resolution in Ukraine, end quote. And so while we're trying to deal with the impact of China and the power that they are trying to exert, especially in South America, Latin America, in the Solomon Islands, if you saw their recent trade deal with them, the U.S. is also trying to tackle the problems that we have with Russia. And it's interesting that we're kind of seeing a dichotomy here. We're seeing the U.S. and the EU versus Russia and China. And, you know, it's not necessarily the same as the Cold War because you had two hegemonic powers. You had two great powers that were very balanced and had influence all over the world. You're kind of seeing the replaying of this authoritarian ideology versus democracy and republicanism. So we'll see how this pans out. And our last article really speaks to the position that Russia's in right now. And I think, you know, we may not have to worry about their influence as much anymore. At least that's the article's argument here. It's from the Daily Wire. General Pistorius, quote, Russia can't win the war. If Putin uses tactical nukes, the U.S. and NATO will destroy Russian conventional forces. And yes, I know, this is very strong language from Pistorius, but, but let's hear him out. So on Sunday on ABC News, he spoke with John Carl, and one of the best quotes from the article is Pistorius saying, quote, he is losing, when he's referring to Putin here, quote, he is losing, and the battlefield reality he faces is, I think, irreversible. Over the last seven months, President Zelensky and Ukraine have mobilized vastly better than the Russia. In other words, Ukraine has recruited, trained, equipped, and organized and employed forces incomparably better than Russia has. And we, we've seen this from the Western perspective. We see a lot of good news about uh, Ukraine making big strides, having big victories, and Russia having big losses. And you can kind of see, or at least from the Western perspective, you can really see this when you look at how Putin has decided to mobilize 300,000 more troops. He has also pushed to have these areas like Donetsk have uh, annexation votes so they can really shore up the victory. And, you know, while Putin could definitely spin it that, oh, well, we have, you know, we want to make sure that these areas can vote in order to be a part of Russia. We want to ensure them their independence. From the West, we kind of see it, a lot of people see it as a, a desperate move. Oh, he doesn't think he can hold on to them in conventional warfare, so he's going to have these elections and make them, quote-unquote, officially a part of Russia, so that if anybody attacks them, he has a reason to push harder and mobilize more troops. 
So it's a strategic move, but it also, it kind of feels weak. It feels like this is the last resort. Instead of being able to take all of Ukraine in one quick move and be able to overtake the entire country, he has to chip away at it slowly, which we kind of didn't see coming from the U.S. We At first, we really didn't have faith in Ukraine. And as Pistorius points out, Ukraine has really mobilized very efficiently. They've gained a lot of support from NATO, and that's definitely helped. But they've also been very, very uh, diligent and very quick to mobilize the population. And they have a really strong propaganda arm in that you see all these terrible, terrible videos that you know make us feel crushed in the West when we see them we we don't know how to respond besides oh my gosh what what are we looking at the horrors of war imagine what that does to a ukrainian young man who loves his country he sees that and he instantly wants to go out and fight and it's always interesting to look at how countries use propaganda you know ukraine in this instance has been really pushing hard on social media and it's been very effective, just like how the U.S. used propaganda during World War One and World War Two when we finally decided to join the war efforts because the U.S. people were not for it. But the propaganda efforts at home eventually swayed the people to the side of the U.S. government. And like I said, Ukraine has been very, very efficient at doing that. But that also comes with the reminder that we are viewing all of this through a Western point of view. We don't want Russia, or at least a majority of people, do not want Russia to win this war. So, of course, General Pistorius is going to have an anti-Russia point of view. Of course, this is going to get covered by ABC News and the Daily Wire because there is a narrative. The narrative is Ukraine is strong. Ukraine can win. And that also really helps play into the idea that Russia is not as big of a threat as they could be. And that is really reassuring for people. We don't want to see another strong superpower that has nuclear weapons really threaten the U.S. like the USSR did. I also want you to remember and keep in mind, and this, this came to me while recording this podcast, that the more that you see these articles that really want us to back Ukraine and give our support to Ukraine... There are also corporate interests at hand here, not just the political ones, but interests that want the American people to actively support Ukraine in their war against Russia, because then it's socially acceptable to keep giving them funding, to keep sending them weapons and other technologies that they can use in war. So, of course, other corporate interests are going to be totally okay and happy when they see these articles that say, oh, we need to support Ukraine. We need to make sure that Russia doesn't win this war. They're going to say, okay, here comes the money. Here comes the money. The U.S. people are all are on board. Now let's lobby the politicians, and we can say, well, the U.S. people want it, so why not give it to them? So remember, there's also that aspect to it. I'm not trying to be conspiratorial. It's just the way the world works. There are always money to assets. There are always people that are looking to benefit off of terrible crises. And I think Pastoris's last comment is one that you really need to keep in mind going into the future. Quote, Putin thinks he can out-suffer Europe, if you will. 
And, you know, the Russians have out-suffered Napoleon and the Nazis and so forth, but I don't think he's going to out-suffer Europe. Europe's going to have a tough winter. There's going to be very reduced flow of natural gas, but they'll get through it. And I don't think they'll crack on the issue of support for Ukraine, end quote. So what do you think? Is Putin going to be able to out-suffer Europe or has Putin been off a little bit more than he can chew? You can leave your comments down there in the comment section. Love to read them. Love to hear your guys' opinions. All right. So the last segment for the day, today, the Daily Delight, comes from USA Today. Wiener dog race for glory and treats at Florida Festival. And it's only in Florida that you could find something so absurd yet so cute. So there, this festival happened in Port St. Lucie, Florida, and they had their third annual wiener dog race. Quote, see the wiener dogs with grit and determination compete for glory, bragging rights, pieces of pepperoni as a celebratory treat, and a trophy fitting of a famous long dog with short legs. Oscar the wiener dog was crowned the winner of the race, end quote. Sorry, I had to make that sound a little bit more dramatic, you know, add a little bit of levity. Uh, sorry, not levity. Add a little bit of tension to it. And as always, in the link in the description below that like and subscribe button, you can find all the articles from today, including the cute photos and videos of these wiener dogs in their costumes. All right, with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.